Hello and welcome to episode 98 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Alegi. Peter Lynn is away. My guest today on the podcast is Ben Rollins, the author of City of Thorns, Nine Lives in the World's Largest Refugee Camp, and also of Radio Congo, Signals of Hope from Africa's Deadliest War. He is currently an Open Society Foundations Fellow. From 2006 to 2013, Rollins was a researcher for Human Rights Watch in the Africa Division, covering at different times the Horn of Africa, Kenya, Nigeria, Uganda, and Zanzibar. He has also worked as an advisor to the Civic United Front, a Tanzanian opposition party, as a foreign affairs advisor to the Liberal Democrats in the UK Parliament, and for the Social Science Research Council. Rollins holds a BA in Swahili and History from the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London, and an MA in International Relations from the University of Chicago. Welcome, Ben. Thank you. Well, this new book of yours, Ben, City of Thorns, is a really impressive story about the human suffering that exists in these adopt camps of Kenya. Uh, one of the things that really struck me is the uh, humanizing portraits that you paint of so many individuals, Goulet, Tawane, Professor White Eyes, Nisho, and Fish, and so many others. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to decide um, to write about these particular individuals in the camps, and possibly even what your motivation behind writing the book was in the first place? Well, to be honest, um the writing of the book was actually a product of my frustration with coming up against the wall, the implacable wall of the policy failure in the in the Horn of Africa, which has led to so many crises, political as well as military, but also in, in terms of the response to all these people displaced and the refugee crisis, which is one of the, the urgent aspects of that. And I'd been working for many years for Human Rights Watch and lobbying on these issues and trying to push for more humane policies towards the camps and, and also more humane policies in Somalia that would hopefully lead to less people being displaced. And seeing really the, the limits of that, seeing understanding the political limits of some other kind of solutions. And so I took a more cultural turn, and that was why I... I sort of slowly moved away from the human rights angle and I wanted to tell some more some individual stories in more depth really to give people a sense of what it's like to live in that place what it's like to earn a living there what it's like to fall in love to try and get married raise the money to buy you know, to have a bride price to afford a wife things like that because of course I'd, I'd done the um, all the sad stories for, for Human Rights Watch. You're always asking people, uh, you know, the, the, the cliche is, you know, find me the, the people who speak English who've been raped. You know, that's what often what the journalists and the human rights workers are going for is just the bad stories. But what fascinated me when I visited the camp was how does this city function? Because it is a city, you know, and the city gives, the, the word city really hints at the complexity and the diversity of the place rather than a camp. 
um, which doesn't doesn't really get at it. So having decided that I wanted to tell individual stories as a means of communicating to a wider audience, then I had the job of picking the people. Okay, so which individual stories? And I started off interviewing about 50 people because I had been to the camps before. I knew some of the community leaders. I knew interpreters. And I wanted, I had a few general ideas in the sense I wanted somebody who worked in the market to get a sense of the economy of the place. I knew I wanted to interview some young women who had the experience of growing up in the camp, which is very different from growing up in Somalia. And those 50 people, within about six months, I've whittled that down to about 16. And I was following 16 people for a good year until we got down to about 12, because some people, their life stories didn't pan out in such an interesting way. Some people went back to Somalia. Um, one woman didn't want me to use her story in the end. So I had to make some choices. But in the end, it was the the nine or so. I mean, nine is actually a, a slight inaccuracy. It's it's also a play on, you know, surviving in the place. It's actually eight relationships that I'm looking at in the book. And then one or two wild cards who are funny guys who, you you know, you couldn't, you couldn't miss them out of the book because their stories are too good. <laughs> And there's this tension in the book between the very grim reality of these camps. There are actually several camps in this massive area with anywhere between, what, 300 and 500,000 people, depending on the time, and the rhythms of everyday life. So you have these hardships, which are really heart-wrenching. I mean, there's a description in the book, I think it comes from Oxfam, that calls it a public health emergency. You describe it as a place of overcrowding, uh, groaning, filthy, disease-ridden, riddled slum, heaving with traumatized people without enough to eat. Crime was sky high. Rape was routine. I mean, this this is a very, very tough place in the desert. And yet, there was life, right? You show legal and illegal trade. You talk about going to school and learning to become a teacher. And of course, my favorite, the 18 football pitches and the nearly 200 teams that compete uh, in the camps. So can you tell us a little bit about the trade that goes on, who controls it, how it works, what are the opportunities and the challenges, and how people are trying to uh, live and survive, if not even thrive in some cases, in the, in the camps of Dadaab? Yeah. Well, I, the first thing is to mention that these camps have been there for 25 years. So they were established in 91 with about 90,000 refugees who fled the collapse of Somalia. And since then, they've grown. And of course, since then, life has moved on. You can stick a bunch of refugees in the desert, but you can't stop them from living. And what people have done is save some of their food rations, sell their food rations. They've acquired money from relatives sent from abroad. They've started businesses. They've started uh, football leagues. And, and this whole civic life has sprung up over the last 25 years. So it, it started from scratch. And people have built it. It didn't just sort of emerge. And what that has led to now is an economy that turns over around $25 million a year. Um, the core of it is the food aid, because everybody there who's a registered refugee is eligible for World Food Program rations. And that is rice, oil, maize, certainly no tea or sugar or fruit and vegetables, but just the bare minimum. And that's because the Kenyan government doesn't allow people to work. 
It won't allow the refugees to leave, um, nor will it allow them to, to have any kind of permanent structures. So people are reliant on this food aid. And if you want anything extra than the rations, you've got to get some cash. And the only way you can get cash if you don't if have a job or you, know, you haven't invested in some kind of illegal business that's grown up in the black market, then the only way you can get cash is to sell your rations. And that's what uh, one of the characters, Goulet, does when he first arrives in the camp. He wants to make a phone call back to Mogadishu to tell his wife that he's arrived safely. But he can only do that after two weeks when he's finally got his food rations and he's sold his two kilos of rice to raise two bucks that he can then use to make a phone call. So the the price of anything anything beyond the bare minimum of food is actually hunger. Um, and some people have uh, gone hungry for two years in order to save the money to start a shop, which they then um, hope in the future will, will lead to more work, to, to, to you know, a better income. So there's the food rations, then there's goods coming in from Somalia, pasta, Chinese plastic stuff, sugar, also vehicles, vegetables, everything that people want in the camp pretty much comes from, in from Somalia. Um, and then you have uh, another trade, which is the things that pass through the camp on their way into Kenya. So Kenya is part of COMESA, the economic union. It has quite high tariffs. It's a bit like the sort of European Union of East Africa, um, the, the common market of East and Southern Africa. Um, so it has quite high tariffs for stuff coming in from Somalia. Um, but of course, if you subvert those, then there's a lot of money to be made. So the sugar trade is the biggest one because a third of Kenya's sugar market comes from this smuggled sugar that goes through the dab. So one young boy that uh, I follow in the book called Nisho works in the market um, in this sugar trade. There's all sorts of interest going on. There are Kenya, the Kenyan military is involved, Kenyan politicians are involved, Al-Shabaab is involved. Um, so it's, it's quite a complicated, in a way, conflict economy, I think you could call it. We'll come back to Al-Shabaab, of course, because this, this is a very interesting part of the story. But I want to think about the camp as a Muslim space. It's not all Somalis, uh, but it is overwhelmingly uh, comprised of Somali refugees. There are Congolese there, there are Ethiopians, Sudanese, and, and a few others. But I was impressed in the way that you sort of ethnographically describe the camps as a Muslim space. And this takes various expressions. I mean, people are doing their daily prayers, they're observing Ramadan and celebrating Eid and so on and so forth, but they're also mapping the camp in, in ways that are indicative of their Islamic background and culture. For example, the market, the all-important market, which was significant in your research as well, is called Bosnia, right? And of course, that has to do with the conflict in the Balkans in the first half of the 1990s, but of course, uh, that that conflict in itself, you know, was directly related to issues of identity and religion and and to Islam. And also, uh, they they call another space Istanbul because of Turkey's heavy involvement in assisting uh, the funding of the camps and so on. So, can you tell us a little bit about the the role of Islam in in everyday life in the camps and how this is distinctly different from what we're going to tackle later, which is of course the pernicious and devastating influence of al-Shabaab. Sure. I mean, Islam, for 
Somalis in general, I think, and, and especially people living in the camp, is a kind of a, a culture, a way of life, um, a set of values. It governs the way in which people are taught uh, in terms of their education in madrasas, um, as well as their education in the, in the secular um, sphere as well. It governs the way in which they're married, the way in which they're buried. But it, it, it's a, a particular kind of, um, of Islam that's mostly the, the product of a, a rural lifestyle in southern Somalia. It's a kind of moderate Sufi version of Islam, very mystical, very laced with superstition. There's, uh, we, I, we spoke of Nisho earlier. Nisho's mother is a little bit crazy, and he doesn't treat her in the sort of traditional Western sense. He takes her to the witch doctor. And the witch doctor makes him kill a chicken and makes a little stew of honey and leaves and requires the, his mum to drink it. And that actually has a significant effect and, and improves her mental condition for a while. And he doesn't have to tie her up, which is what he does when he normally goes to work. Um, but that witch doctor is seen by some people in the camp as a, as a bad guy, you know, because... Uh, according to the more recent versions of Islam, these kind of pagan beliefs are haram and are, you know are to be avoided, and they're they're unsophisticated. So there's an interesting um, it's it's an interesting kind of Islam in the sense that it's very rooted in a in in that rural experience across the border. It's very very far from the kind of Salafi ideology of of Al Shabab, and I think when you see the daily life of, uh, as you say, celebrating Eid, slaughtering a goat, and, and also the way in which the language is inflected with, with religious terms, you know, uh, like, as we say, God bless you and things like that, you know, the same way that in, in the camp everybody says, inshallah, if God wishes for tomorrow morning, you know, something will happen and so on. So it's very, it's very gentle, it's very easygoing, and I think that hopefully people who, who read the book will... We'll, we'll see, you know, the, the different ways in which a Muslim culture can frame lives, yeah. Shifting our gaze a little bit away from the residents of the camps, it struck me in your book how the Kenyan government in particular took a very harsh view of the camps themselves, but also of the people. And, you know, this is typical, I think, sadly, about of refugees elsewhere. You know, you think of uh, refugees from Syria, for example, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, and so on, in, in Europe and elsewhere. They face not only treacherous uh, journeys, often deadly journeys to their uh, destinations, but also rampant xenophobia in the receiving countries. Um, and you say in the book, the Kenyan government seems to have an institutional antipathy towards the Somalis. And I'd like you to speak to that a little bit, maybe give a few examples, but also in doing that, maybe address the fact that many Kenyans are of Somali background and how then this type of xenophobia affects, you know, the, what it means to be Somali in Kenya. Well, I think to answer your question, we've got to go back um, about over a hundred years to the British involvement in the region, the Italian involvement in the region, and the deal that was done at the Berlin Conference with the government of Ethiopia at that time, the Emperor Menelik II, and the borders of the Horn of Africa were drawn in the sand. And these were, of course, complete fictions. They had nothing to do with the realities on the ground. And in fact, quarter of the territory of 
Kenya um, is traditional Somali grazing land. Um, the population, the Somali population of Kenya is probably a bit less than that. But those people, um, the British asked them in the 19, late 1950s, would you like to be part of Kenya or would you like to be part of the independent republic of Somalia? And they voted overwhelmingly to join Somalia, to join their brethren there. And the British government at the time, 1960, ignored their wishes and gave that slice of northern Kenya to Kenya, which is why we call it Kenya now. And the northeast province immediately went to war. It was called the Shifter War. Um, Somali, the Somali government joined in, and there was a border war with Kenya. The same thing happened in the 1970s with Ethiopia. The, again, a quarter of southern Ethiopia is traditionally what we call Greater Somalia. So uh, almost a half of, of Somali or a third of Somali people and Somali territory is outside the current borders of Somalia. It's a bit like, in, in some cases, it's a bit like Palestine. Um, and the historical legacy is also similar. And that's part of the reason why the, the state of Somalia is failed now. So what that means for the current Kenyan government is they're very aware of that history. And they they have, you know, some people are still alive who fought that war um, to keep the northern, northeastern province part of Kenya. And they mistrust those Somalis because they're always afraid that they will try and, again, rejoin Somalia, that perhaps their sympathies are more with Somalia than they are with Kenya. Um, and to give you an example, one of the quotes in the, in the book drawn from a Human Rights Watch report yeah, was a police policewoman in Nairobi telling a Somali woman, you're all terrorists. Um, they, the, the Kenyan state views those that, that population as suspect, as a fifth column. And they don't make much distinction between people of Kenyan citizenship and Somali citizenship. If you look Somali, you're a Somali and you're not really Kenyan. And actually, that's something that's been internalized by both the Kenyan Somalis who live in Northeast province. They refer to Kenya as down Kenya, as the rest of Kenya that's not in Northeast province. That's mm -hmm. once you cross the bridge over the river Tana at Garissa into the rest of Kenya, but not the desert. Um, and the refugees also um, often talk about Northeast province as being, you know, actually their land, you know. And one of the guys in the, in the book, Tawane, his grandparents grazed camels on the land that it is Dadaab now. But his father went to Somalia, he was born in Somalia, he's a Somali, and now the family comes back to this historic land, but they're refugees, and they don't have any claim to the sand that they're living on. So there's all kinds of crazy contradictions that that, that colonial legacy has given birth to. Speaking of crazy contradictions, you talk in the book about the famine of 2011 and also the arrival of uh, tens of thousands of new refugees, among them also people who are fleeing al-Shabaab in southern Somalia. And the, this radical Islamist terrorist group, of course, makes a very destructive entrance into the camps, and it really transforms the life of people in these Kenyan camps. What's your perspective on sort of the, the, the conflict in, in southern Somalia, particularly in relationship to the involvement of international actors? Because I remember al-Shabaab really came to the fore after the destruction of the Islamic Courts Union, if I'm not mistaken, in late 2006, uh, early 2007, something that was 
really encouraged and fostered by the United States and Ethiopia in particular uh, as a proxy of, of the United States. So, you know, what, what's, what's your reading of this very messy, crazy, and, and quite contradictory conflict in a lot of ways? And what's, uh, maybe what's the possible solution, if there is one, on the horizon? Hmm. Well, I, I'm not that optimistic about the, the solutions. I mean, I think the... Let me talk about how we got here. I mean, the, the, the 2006 invasion of Somalia by Ethiopia was a key turning point. Prior to that, we had seen 15 years of civil war in Somalia, and the clans had pretty much fought themselves to a standstill. And what emerged um, in 2005, 2006, was this thing called the Islamic Courts Union, which was a union basically of municipal courts, like there's a, a law court in you know any small town. These had kind of got together, and they were mostly concerned with family law, um, which, which uh, was governed by Sharia. Um, and they got themselves together and emerged as a kind of third force, if you like, between the clans, a supra-clan force, um, to, to bring peace to the country. And people were pretty optimistic. There was a, a, a brief window of hope that people thought, well, you know, maybe this is, this is peace for Somalia at last. Um, but one of those, one guy from the Islamic Courts Union went on Al Jazeera and made some comments about a jihad against Ethiopia. Now, if you understand the history of Somalia, of course, that's understandable. The U.S. Uh, Bush administration overreacted. Ethiopia was itching to invade because Ethiopia does not want to see a stable, peaceful Somalia that might lay claim to historical Somalia, i.e., a quarter of southern Ethiopia, which contains a lot of gas. Or neither was Kenya that happy about the Islamic Courts Union for the same reasons. So the regional powers were very happy when the US wrote a blank check for Ethiopia to invade and get rid of the ICU. And of course, what happened was the ICU was destroyed very quickly. But Al-Shabaab was energized. Al-Shabaab was, a, was a, uh, one of the factors in the ICU. But they then came to the fore and they uh, gained a lot of support uh, and all of a sudden became the major controller of, of territory. They, they controlled around 90% of south-central Somalia at that point. That then became the defining frame, if you like, for Western foreign policy towards the region and it coloured all of the attempts to provide aid into southern Somalia because everything then became about access. So you had aid agencies that were doing deals with al-Shabaab, paying off al-Shabaab in order to get access to the populations that at that time were really suffering from the drought in 2010, 2011. The US didn't like that. It imposed the Office of Foreign Assets Control sanctions on southern Somalia. So the agencies were then really struggling to gain access. More and more people were dying as a result of the drought. And at the same time, you have this kind of proxy war going on in Mogadishu. All of this resulted in massive numbers of people coming into the camps, seeking food. Initially, the international humanitarian industry did not pay enough attention. Finally, when it did, it poured in in large numbers in the way that it often does, that we're familiar with that international crisis response to, you know, Haiti and other natural disasters and so they came in in numbers, and of course, for them, this was this was a party. This was boom time. This was budgets were being met, lots of resources flowing. All of the journalists, celebrities, emergency aid workers, very well paid people. Some of them, 
in the book, we see all of this through the eyes of Nisho in the camp, who, working in the market, he sees this as the glory days, you know, all this money coming in and so on. So Anderson Cooper. <laughs> Anderson Cooper was there from CNN. But, you know, he for him, that's the opportunity to make a ton of cash, to get a camel, to facilitate a marriage for him. So what I tried to do was to was to give you a, a, a different view of all of that. But the you know, and, and that highlights, I think, some of the contradictions of, of this, the, you know, the, the winners and losers of the aid industry, but also the interconnectedness between terrorism, between foreign policy and regional politics and the aid industry. And they're all feeding into each other all the time. They're feeding into each other. And yet it doesn't seem to be a system that's going to be bringing any kind of peace or stability to the very people that it claims to be serving and, and in many ways is serving. Yeah, well, it, it's, it's actually a recipe for chaos because they've all got different agendas. So, you know, the, they were working against each other. I mean, the crazy thing about um, the drought was that you had agencies paying Al-Shabaab for access. And of course, what's Al-Shabaab doing with that money? It's using it for the war effort. So no wonder the U.S. State Department then tried to put a, a stop to it and tried to put sanctions on on aid agencies and threatened aid agencies with jail, in fact, if they were seen to be aiding al-Shabaab. At the same time, the U.S. proxy for fighting al-Shabaab in southern Somalia is the Kenyan military. The Kenyan military is actually in business with al-Shabaab <laughs> on the ground, exporting charcoal, importing smuggled sugar. So on the one hand, the U.S. policy is trying to, to stop al-Shabaab from getting cash. On the other hand, they're actually making it easier for them because of their alliance with Kenya. So you have a whole load of, of thinking that's just not joined up. Well, unfortunately, it's a fairly familiar story if one thinks, for example, of what's happened in Afghanistan and continues to happen in Afghanistan or even uh, in Iraq. And uh, there seem to be very few lessons that are being learned from the painful recent history of these conflicts. Uh, I think one of the ways to perhaps start to uh, conceive of a solution is to let the people decide. Uh, I think self-determination is a very powerful concept, and it's one that I don't see at the center of many of these discussions, uh, regrettably. What's happened to the individuals who you talk about in the book? Uh, are you still in touch with all of these remarkable human beings uh, who are in the camps, have they left the camps? Are they back in Mogadishu or, or elsewhere? Have they moved to Nairobi? Have they resettled in the United States or in Europe? Mm. Well, everybody wants to resettle in the United States or Europe. That's very much the dream. Um, and uh, as you'll see in the book, people spend their whole lives, you know, waiting for this future in America that never arrives. For two people, um, the story of Monday and Muna is a, a lost boy, a Christian lost boy who marries a, a very beautiful Somali Muslim woman. And they have this kind of Romeo and Juliet relationship where her family wants to kill him because he's a Christian. And they have a child which the family sees as a, as a mutant and they try and assassinate the child. So that sort of very dramatic story um, had a, a happy ending because they were selected for emergency protection by the UN. Um, and after a very long process, I mean, emergency in UN terms ended up being about three years. But finally, they were resettled to Australia. So, so they have a new life there. 
But all the other people in the camp are still there. Um, we're friends. We're on Facebook. We chat regularly. They've been following the progress of the book. They've seen my interviews on different TV channels and radio. And they become celebrities, uh, perhaps, in the camp. Um, I don't think so yet, because no, you know, very few people have read it in the camp. Mostly because they can't afford it, not because they can't read English. So I have sent one box of books to the camp. Um, we're trying to get get another one there. I mean, my my hope is is that they will, you know, continue to thrive and find some way of uh, of having a, a satisfying life, whether that's in the camp or not. And with a little bit more money and some kind of income, you know, usually a black market income, you can make a life in the camp at at least to afford enough to eat. I mean, that's the first thing, um, and to look after your basic needs. No one should spend their life trapped in, the, in an open prison like that, and that's how they do refer to it. But given that they are stuck, the role of people like me who are friends with them is to you know, do what we can to assist and to make their lives a little bit better. And um, the role of the international community, I think, is to meet those basic needs, which unfortunately they're not doing at the moment. Well, I thought the, the book did a remarkable job of painting uh, refugees in a very human way. Uh, these days, the coverage really tends to emphasize the facelessness uh, of these suffering human beings, men, women, and children. I think it's a book that really tries to foster empathy uh, towards people who are struggling. And uh, I do hope that there's a, a momentum that might assist in creating a more effective response to such frequent uh, human crises. So uh, thank you very much, Ben Rollins, author of City of Thorns, Nine Lives in the World's Largest Refugee Camp, uh, for speaking with Africa Past and Present. Thanks for having me. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. 